VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati and Sharmal Sheikh. World leaders are committing things that they know they're not going to be there for. If you're going to discuss about malaria, don't invite the mosquitoes. It is us who are going to be there. It's us who are facing every day the hurricanes, the floods, the droughts, the famines. We know how to pitch. We know how to develop initiatives. We can make a beautiful deck. We just need a little bit of help to make those connections that it's really difficult to get if you're young, if you're from the global south. You cannot rule a dead planet. The second week of COP is underway. Negotiations on loss and damage and climate financing are going to heat up. Whether the so-called implementation COP will live up to its promise will be answered this week. Over the past few days though, I've been talking to youth activists about how they are engaging with this COP, which is happening in a repressive country. How that reflects the broader challenge of activism and what they are doing to make changes in their own countries. But first, I'm talking with my Bloomberg colleagues, John Anger and Jen DeLuhi, about what's happening on the ground. Jen, John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Jen, you've been the reporter who's taken the hardest hits from Sharmal Sheikh. You've had food poisoning, you've had mosquito bites, now you're getting a little bit of a cold. Asking you how COP's going is going to be a hard question. <laughs> you can't complain too much uh, being in a seaside resort town, but I will say that the mosquitoes have been pretty pesky. I've counted 133 bites, uh, <laughs> and I'm hoping I don't reach higher levels today. But, uh, you know, it's, it's taken its toll. Yeah. John, you've had a better time, I think. Yes, for sure. I mean, um, you couldn't get a much more different location from Glasgow. There's definitely an increase in temperature of about 20 degrees C, so um, can't complain too much on that front. Now, let's talk news, because there's been quite a bit today. Uh, Jen, there was a large announcement of $20 billion going to Indonesia uh, under this so-called Just Energy Transition Partnership. You already had the news last week. We did, and, and we had that affirmed today. I mean, this is a big, big deal. It's the largest international climate finance package of its kind, $20 billion going to Indonesia to help them get rid of coal plants and bring on renewable power. You know, the U.S. and Japan really were the, the core countries developing this project with Indonesia over the last year. Uh, but there are nine countries and the U.K. involved in total, uh, and it also is going to bring in private finance. So basically, it's $20 billion split. 10 billion by the government partners and 10 billion from members of GFANS, the banks and asset managers that are part of that. Uh, and they're, they're pledging to really work hard and work fast. The hope here is that this will be uh, off the ground in the next six months. And the theme of this COP has been show me the money. And so there's real money this time. And if Indonesia gets it right, they will bring forward the peak of their emissions from 2038 to 2030. That would be quite the win. Now, talking of Speaking emissions or reducing emissions, we also got a commitment from the EU, John. What was that? 
Yeah, so the EU today, Franz Timmermans, the EU's climate chief, came here today with a big announcement, or what he said was a big announcement, that the EU will be able to cut emissions by 57% by the end of this decade, and that's an increase from 55%. So it doesn't sound a lot, but for them it's evidence that they're actually implementing uh, their climate plans. So the key element of this particular thing is the carbon sinks. They've agreed to boost carbon sinks, uh, nature-based solutions in the EU, and that means they can put forward a slightly higher target. And what did other delegations make of the EU's commitment? Well, I think the EU is in a very interesting role at this year's COP because it is a continent that will be the first to reach climate neutrality by the middle of the century. But at the same time, it finds itself mired in an energy crisis that's forcing it to go on a hunt for gas, a dash for gas, as uh, some people like to say. So we saw activists last week say that the EU and Germany in particular is using Africa as its gas station. So that's putting the EU in a bit of a difficult position. So for the EU, this is their chance to show that they are implementing their green goals. Whether it will move the needle much in negotiations, I don't think it will. And overnight, we had a draft text on loss and damage, the big topic about how to get developed countries to provide money to developing countries uh, as a compensation for climate impacts. That draft was met with quite a lot of skepticism. Greenpeace said it is a skeleton draft, but without a backbone. Uh, What do you make of that, Jen? Well, there's quite a lot to be filled in here. I mean, we're, you know, in the end game and I'm mixing metaphors, but there's a lot to be filled in uh, in this skeleton. And, and you know, there's quite a lot of disagreement. We've seen some movement uh, in just the you know recent days uh, from the EU uh, and some other parties suggesting that maybe a facility could be set up uh, for loss and damage. But the U.S. is still very much dug in. They are resistant to the idea of a new facility and a new uh, funding stream to be resolved by the end of the COP. Again, four days out from the end, we're at a tough place. Talking of not going in the right direction, uh, we are in Egypt in a repressive regime, and it has been a difficult time for activists. Uh, John, you've heard some stories directly from activists. Uh, What were they like? Yeah, so I think firstly, it's important to set out why activism is so important at COP summits, and that's because they really are a driver of more ambition when it comes to cutting emissions. Historically, the middle Saturday has been where we've seen thousands of protesters march through the streets in order to call for countries to do more. But what we've seen at this year's COP is happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is sandwiched between the desert and the sea. Uh, There's a wall around the city. There's uh, a number of guards in suits looking out over the city. And uh, we've seen NGOs have found it really, really difficult to do what they normally do. That started weeks ago when uh, hotels were already cancelling and hiking prices for NGOs in particular. But we've seen that continue once this COP has started. So hotels have really started to price gouge, um, is what we've heard from a number of uh, NGO sources. Room rates have tripled, leaving NGOs in some cases out on the streets or trying to find rooms. But we've also seen other crackdowns on activities, the Middle Saturday protest, as I mentioned, normally 10,000 people on the streets. That's not been possible at this year's conference. Uh, We saw a small protest, probably between 500 and 800 protesters within the UN venue. Um, And because it's in the UN venue, it takes on different rules. Um, They're not allowed to call people out by name or companies by name. So I think that's really stifled a lot of the NGO activism that we've typically seen. Well, it's going to be a long few days and nights before there is an agreement among 200 nations, if there is one. Good luck 
for the remainder of the time. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Good luck to you, Akshat. After the break, I speak to youth activists from Argentina, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Burundi, and Uganda about how they are working to make change happen. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Earlier this week, Bloomberg Quick Take reporter Jennifer Zabasaja and I spoke with Vanessa Nakate, a climate activist from Uganda, who was recently appointed a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. Vanessa Nakate, climate activist, thank you so much for joining us here on Bloomberg. Happy to be here. So Vanessa, I mean, now we're a weekend to, to COP. Talk to us about what it's been like. This is a different COP than, than you've been to before. You know, what I can say is that young people are not allowing, you know, uh, our leaders not to take action. We are demanding for climate justice and especially for the communities on the front lines of the climate crisis. Now, uh, Egypt, it was an African COP, right? This is supposed to be where African issues are highlighted. Uh, Many, many African leaders came and spoke. Do you think, as somebody from Uganda, that issues that are affecting Africa have been well represented? Well, um, many people have been calling this an African COP, and we really hope that it lives up to that name. And one of the things that has been on the agenda or that was put on the agenda is the issue of loss and damage. And we know that the climate crisis is pushing so many communities beyond adaptation. And that is where loss and damage comes in. And different activist groups and civil society has been calling for a loss and damage finance facility. So we really do hope that there is progress made on a loss and damage finance facility on this scope so that it can live up to, you know, the name that it has been given, the African COP. Well, what does that look like, though, Vanessa? Because for, for a lot, I mean, depending on which country you're talking about, some leaders are not even really engaging with the way loss and damage is sort of being discussed here. And others are saying, you know, liability is not on the table. And so, like, in the next few days, what does an adequate loss and damage, you know, cop and agenda look like in your mind? Well, um, for so many, you know, activists, many of us are not like loss and damage experts, we are not finance experts, but we know what is happening in our communities, we know what is happening, you know, in our countries, and we are using our voices and our platforms to talk about what we are doing or what we are seeing in our communities. 
for example, the, you know, the flooding in Uganda, the flooding in Nigeria, in Pakistan, the cyclones that affect the southern part of the African continent. So that is what we, we are talking about, what we know and also, you know, what we've seen happen in our, in our communities. And we hope that in these remaining days, um, we can have something that can give us hope you know, for addressing the loss and damage that is happening in communities right now. Many of the African leaders we spoke to, uh, the president of Mozambique, the president of Senegal, are continuing with building out fossil fuel projects. Senegal is going to get a gas project, so is Mozambique. Same thing is happening in Uganda, where they are building oil extraction and then a pipeline going through Tanzania. That's what your leaders are doing. That's what African country leaders are doing. They're saying we need to develop our fossil fuels because it was the rich countries, the developed countries that polluted. You should allow us to pollute. How do you address this uh, tension between needing energy, yeah. even if it's fossil fuel energy, by your own country leaders versus having to not allow these projects because that's what the climate demands? Yeah, you know, about 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa don't have access to basic electricity. But I also know that, you know, fossil fuel corporations have for decades promised that fossil fuel investments in Africa will lead to economic progress and development. But you can agree with me that we haven't seen that in some of the African countries where we've seen fossil fuel investments. So it's obvious that this has been a lie from the fossil fuel companies that has been going on for decades. And it is the same situation happening right now. Uh, fossil fuel companies are promising jobs. They are promising development. But we carry no testimony of the investments that have already done in the past decades on the African continent. That's why I believe that what Africa needs is you know, renewable energy. When you f see the fossil fuel investment or infrastructure, they never reach the person at the last mile. And of course, you know, some of the investments are coming because of the, you know, the energy crisis um, in Europe or in the, in the West. But then people only recognize an energy crisis because it's happening in Europe, but they never recognized an energy crisis when 600 million people in Africa didn't have access to electricity. That was never referred to as an energy crisis. So I hope that people can understand that Europe deciding to come for gas in Senegal or you know, any other infrastructure on the African continent, it is for the interests of Europe and it's not for the interest of the people in Africa. Before coming to this COP, some activists, Greta Thunberg included, called it a greenwashing cop. Why do you think that's the way to describe what is happening here? Because a lot of people are coming here from 200 countries trying to make progress, even though progress is quite slow. Should it be called greenwashing? I mean, I can say we can find ourselves in a system that is completely greenwashing, that is completely youthwashing, but then we have to try and change that system and make it better. And, you know, when you come from a community that is on the front lines of the climate crisis, you have no other choice but to come and try and change the system. You have no other choice but to come and talk about what's happening in your community. But to speak from uh, 
community that is on the front lines of the climate crisis, I think that it's not a matter of choice. We have to be here. We have to try and make things better for our communities and for our future. And talking of next year, we are going from Egypt, which is a, a gas exporting country, to uh, UAE. Uh, which is an oil exporting country, it also has some gas. What are your feelings about going to another COP where fossil fuels uh, will be very much a, a strong part of the presentation? Uh, there is something that I read recently and it said, if you're going to discuss about malaria, don't invite the mosquitoes. Uh, so. Yeah, um, I don't know who said that, but I've been hearing it even at the, at the COP. So I don't think that it's very sad when we have like fossil fuel uh, corporations dominating the spaces in the COPs because, you know, it's the very industry that is fueling the climate crisis. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks so much, Welcome. Vanessa. Thank you, too. I also spoke to several activists at the Bloomberg Green event at COP27. They aren't just campaigning, but are also working on other concrete ways to tackle climate change. Ishraq Osman started a philanthropic organization to fund those affected by climate impacts in Sudan. Delphin Kazi started a company that's making clean cooking fuel in Burundi. And Eyal Weintraub is a climate activist from Argentina who also runs climate education courses. I had the pleasure of being able to put together a book of edited essays of 60 activists from 60 different countries uh, two years ago. And the most fascinating thing I found was they had such different stories, life stories, to come to the point that they have. Uh, so Isha, can I start with you? What is it that brought you to working on climate issues? So I come from Sudan, but I am uh, based in the UAE. And uh, growing up outside Sudan and as a diaspora community generally, I really felt this responsibility uh, towards what I can provide back home. And my climate journey really started with my uh, bachelor's in environmental sciences. I was very much aware of the situation in Sudan with regards to the flood crisis. And I wanted to know how much are people within the Sudanese context also trying to uh, provide for themselves and how are they, you know, uh, breaking barriers towards what the crisis that they're facing. And then just like three months ago, I got the chance to go to the Greenpeace Climate Justice Camp. And that's when we got this idea where we saw that there is a reason why we are in the stagnant stage. And it's because we're not getting any accessibility to the right funding, to the right resources that will help us reach our potential. And that's where we decided, you know, if no one's going to stand up for us, we'll stand up for ourselves. We will try to change the philanthropic pathway that is so inaccessible to many of us. Now, EL, we are in a country where protests are nigh impossible, and yet COP meetings, which are essentially synonymous with protests, is happening here. What has it been like for you to be able to make it to Shamal Sheikh? So it's been quite complicated. The first thing you need to solve if you want to participate in a conference like this to enter the Blue Zone is accreditation. And getting accreditation for youth can be quite difficult. Luckily, in my government this year from Argentina, they gave us badges as part of a party overflow credentials. And once you solve the credentials comes uh, the real complicated part, which is gathering the funding, especially if you're from the global south and you're young. 
less than 1% of climate funding from grants, from foundations and different initiatives go to youth-led initiatives. And most of that is concentrated in the US. So if you're from Argentina, like me, it can be quite a hassle to gather the funding to be able to come here. I had to basically get small pots of gold from different persons and one people who were able to buy the flights and another who were able to help with the housing. And specifically housing here, there you can see a, a very concrete way of how unequal the um, climate world is in terms of the differences between the global north and the global south. I'm staying in the Tulip Inn, which is the hotel that is subsidized by the Egyptian government. We arrived there and many of the places were overbooked, so people were literally being rejected there when they arrived after having spent thousands of dollars and lots of times and months of planning to be able to get here. We're all from the global south in that hotel. And so accessibility really for the financing and the credentials can be quite difficult at times. And how has it been the first few days in terms of being able to protest? They, you know, we've seen sporadic uh, photos of some protests being allowed inside the blue zone. But compare your experience back in COP26 to what it is now in COP27. And how do you feel the difference beyond the logistical challenges of getting here? So in COP26, I remember there being interventions and direct actions constantly, multiple times a day. And then, of course, a huge youth strike on Friday and an even bigger intersectional uh, coalition-led strike on Saturday, which in total mobilized between both, let me like 300, 400,000 people. This time, there probably won't be any mobilization or any strike outside. If it is, it will be very small. I haven't seen even one uh, direct action or protest inside the, the venue. I think I saw one outside. But this is also one of the contradictions that I've seen at COP in the sense of the things that we're usually protesting for is money for adaptation, money for loss and damages instead, instead of reparations. And... The Egyptian government, being a part of Africa, being one of the countries that is suffering climate violence firsthand, has been pushing really hard for adaptation and loss and damages to be in the negotiating tables. And so there's that contradiction in the sense of there's no protests and suddenly there's being advances in adaptation and loss and damages. So that's been quite confusing, to, to be honest. And Kazi, now you started off as an activist, but very quickly through your experience in Burundi, you moved on to business as a solution. I started as a climate activist as uh, I got the opportunity to be uh, a student in environmental sciences at university. Uh, at that time, I realized how we are facing an alarming rate of deforestation uh, where we were losing about between 5,000 and 7,000 hectares of forest cover in our country per year. We organized some conferences, some campaigns in uh, my community, but the question was, yes, you told us about we, we should change what we use in cooking, but where is the alternative? And I decided at that time that my activism should be accompanied by concrete actions. And then I founded Kaze Green Economy, which is a clean cooking company. And indoor cooking, which is very common, kills uh, four and a half million people annually. Uh, and that's just because of all the fumes that are generated from burning inefficiently uh, the wood. So wood burning is still a solution, but clean cooking allows for, for those particulate uh, matter pollution to not be affected 
and, and thus uh, help with health, not just access to energy. You told me that access to electricity in Burundi is still 7%, which is only 7% of the population has access to electricity. So energy access has been uh, uh, an issue that we've talked about here at COP quite a bit. You know, the numbers are something like half of the population in Africa doesn't have access to electricity. Burundi is, a, you know, uh, an extreme case. What is it that you have to, when you go out and you talk about climate change in those circumstances, what kind of reactions do you get from community? Yeah, it's very uh, complicated about universal access on energy in our country. As you said, uh, just 7% of the population has access on electricity. And uh, that is also what pushed us also to invest in uh, solar electrification, especially in the remote area, to see what we can bring as a change in our community. We did some campaigns in the rural area, but we find those people they don't know uh, really about climate change, but there are other really issues they are facing in their daily life. So we decide let's raising awareness in that community, but also bring some concrete solutions. People should cook with uh, some clean cooking energy solutions. P people should have access on electricity because those are some pillars it's to basic development. Needs. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, Ishak, you, it's you know we're coming to end of the first working week, it's been four or five days. Do you think the topics that you had in mind are being discussed and are being given the platform that they deserve? So obviously loss and damage was one of the most important points that needed to be. I mean, if COP didn't bring that up, then we would have been just super disappointed. And I mean, every year we hear about COP, okay, and we, and we want to have expectations, but at the same time, it's like, we want to ensure that we are staying realistic regarding the situation and that really it's us that has to fend for ourselves, really. Um, so I am kind of happy to hear that. Um, I don't know if I should celebrate it yet. Uh, today I was attending this event with uh, where the Climate um, Resilience Fund, Climate Justice Resilience Funds were uh, talking, and they were also speaking about how we don't even have philanthropy for a loss and damage. So maybe we want to ensure that. So maybe COP27 did bring that kind of dialogue into our discourse. And what's missing that you would like more conversations on? Transparency. How much we can actually see that this is happening. Um, they were also speaking in the climate finance meeting today where everyone's disappointed with the fact that there's no executive summary for this situation and the climate financing issue. And we need to know, how is that funding going to take place? We need to know, how is it going to reach the people that require it the most? And at the same time, that they're not going to be facing a lot of barriers or obstacles on the way. And this is where, you know, our grassroots movements need to be at the front of this dialogue. Uh, they're the ones that should be leading this because it's them that we want to fund. Now, talking of governments, you said uh, you got access to the Blue Zone through the Argentinian government delegation. But have they been supportive of the work you've done in general? You know, is there a dialogue that you have with the government that is open and clear and easy enough? Yes, from Youth for Climate Argentina, we do have a dialogue with different areas of the government, be it the national Argentinian or some local uh, governments as well. But from that dialogue transforming into concrete climate action, um, it's very difficult. Argentina right now has a poverty rate close to 50%, an inflation rate close to 100% annually. Um, 
So basically, the agenda is somewhere else. It's very hard to push through the message that it's impossible to solve poverty and achieve social justice without including uh, a climate perspective and concrete solutions to environmental issues. And so in that sense, we have dialogue with some areas of the government. They're open many times to listen to what we have to say. We even have very decent environmental laws in Argentina, but it's an implementation where it becomes very difficult. Uh, in terms of government penetration, it being able to actually implement those laws that it passes. And so that's a lot with what we've been working on in the last few years with Youth for Climate, is being able to develop local capabilities yeah. so that where the government doesn't reach, well, local organizations and NGOs and, and advocacy organizations like Youth for Climate can help push that forward. Now, the UAE is going to host COP28. What expectations do you have going into next year's COP, which is going to be where you live now, right? Yeah, so growing up in the UAE, I think in the past five to six years, the environment has become a really strong base, and they've really involved the youth in that, I could say. The network that's found in the Arab Youth Council, for instance, for climate change, it has the potential to bring not just the capabilities, but the literacy to even speak about this, to even kind of indicate what sort of ways that we can help our impacted areas in the MENA region. And that obviously involves Sudan. And I would love to know, you know, how much our Sudanese youth are going to be part of that how much our um, ideas, our solutions, our research, also the idea of, because I come from a scientific background as well, I want to know how we can transform the science into policy, how it can be strengthened in its communication, because it's honestly what we have to study in the next few years and what we have to study now for sure, but there are coming years of inhabitable conditions and our policies need to make sure that we are not doing anything to bring that closer to us. Now, it's, there are lots of people here who, who've been hearing from many, many different agenda and, and voices. If you were to leave them with one thing that they should remember, what is it that you would like them to know? I would say kind of reflect in your human nature why you're here today, the situation that you've come from, and then compare that with people that are facing this issue in a thousand times worse. People that are displaced by a situation that they didn't choose to be in that situation, they didn't even contribute to that situation. Compare yourself and then you will feel that responsibility because that's how I felt. I lived my whole life in the UAE. I didn't live in Sudan, but I did go to Sudan. And I had to shift to, to really see what's going on. And suddenly I'm so aware of that life that I'm not living and that life that I should have the responsibility to support. What about you, Yael? We have seven years to reduce greenhouse emissions in 45%. That means we need to accelerate processes as much as possible. And we need to help young people and young organizations develop the capability to be able to help push forward those transformations. And in that sense, we need you to champion us. We need you to open doors. We need a mentorship. We need you to be able to present us with the right connections in order for us to do the rest of the work because we know how to do it. We know how to pitch, we know how to develop initiatives, we can make a beautiful deck. We just need a little bit of help helping to make those connections that it's really difficult to get if you're young, if you're from the global south, in order for us to be able to accelerate those processes and help make the world for us and for you a slightly better place. Fantastic. 
for me, the green economy is the only opportunity that we have to survive. Uh, it's the opportunity to create jobs. It's the opportunity we have to make this world sustainable. So, and the green economy starts with changing our mindset with what we consume, what we produce, what we use in our daily life. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell someone who attracts mosquitoes. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Also, until November 18th, the Bloomberg Green paywall is down. Head to bloomberg.com green to read all our latest coverage and everything in the archives for absolutely free. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindrim, Emma Howard Boyd and Stacey Wong. I'm Akshat Rati, back later this week with more from COP27.